Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm excited to share the 101st episode of Between the Covers, a conversation with Lainey Zumas about her latest book, Red Clocks, and the first episode of the new year. But before I do, I wanted to alert you to some new things about the show. Between the Covers is still a listener-supported labor of love. You can still go to patreon.com slash between the covers and support the show if you find these conversations fulfilling. You will see when you go there that you can still get a copy of Jesse Ball's fantastic co-written out-of-print book, Vera and Linus, as a reward, but I'm also going to start offering bonus material from the conversations themselves. I'm open to hearing from Patreon supporters what sorts of material they would like me to solicit from guests once the main conversation is over, whether it be reading of additional poems or essays, the giving of writing and craft advice, or something I'm not yet thinking about. Today, it will be Lainey Zumas reading her blistering essay, Voss, Brie, Fend, Light. So if this piques your curiosity, check out the page, patreon.com slash between the covers. And if 2018 is as good as the 2018 between the covers roster of upcoming guests, it's going to be a great year. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Lainey Zumas. Lainey Zumas is the author of the novel The Listeners from Tin House Books, which was a finalist for the 2013 Oregon Book Award and picked as one of the Atlantic's best books of 2012, as well as the much-beloved story collection Farewell Navigator from Open City, of which Miranda July says, If darkness has ever been your friend, your story is in here. A graduate of Brown University and of Amherst's MFA program, Zumas is a professor of creative writing in Portland State University's MFA program. Lainey Zumas was first on Between the Covers several years ago to talk about A Wooden Leg, her novel in 64 Cards, co-created and illustrated by Luca Di Piero. And she's back today to talk about one of the most buzzed-about books of 2018, Red Clocks from Little Brown. On nearly every most anticipated books of the year list, Red Clocks has received starred reviews from Library Journal and Booklist, 
and has been listed as one of the top 10 books of upcoming literary fiction by Publishers Weekly. Maggie Nelson says of Red Clocks, Lainey Zumas here proves she can do almost anything. Her tale feels part Melvillian, part Lydia Davis, part Octavia Butler, but really Zumas's vision is entirely her own. Red Clocks is funny, mordant, political, poetic, alarming, and inspiring, not to mention a way forward for fiction now. Lydia Yuknovich adds, move over Atwood. Lainey Zumas's Red Clocks is a gender-roaring tour de force. The bodies of women in Red Clocks are each the site of resistance and revolution. I screamed out loud, I pumped my fist in the air, and I remembered how hope is forged from the ground up through the bodies of women who won't be buried. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Lainey Zumas. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be here. So since this book takes place in a political situation that isn't quite our own, I thought maybe we could start by doing a little bit of world building. Can you orient us to the political realities of the world of Red Clocks and and some of the uh, legislation that has occurred that makes it uh, different than today? Sure. Um, So in the America of Red Clocks, um, Congress has passed uh, an amendment to the Constitution that is known as the personhood amendment that grants rights of life, liberty, and property to a fertilized egg at the moment of conception. And so following from this, Roe v. Wade has been reversed um, and abortion is banned, as is uh, IVF in vitro fertilization um, and other auxiliary laws that are connected to this amendment uh, legislate adoption and who uh, is allowed to adopt children one now has to be married to and with a birth or a marriage certificate to prove it in order to adopt. Um, So it's a a world that's a little different from ours. However, when I was building this world, uh, what I based all of these laws on were actual proposals by legislators who are currently in the Trump administration. Uh, And this was several years ago when I first started writing Red Clocks, but I had come upon a lot of Mike Pence's ideas about Uh, women being required to have a funeral or cremation service for fetal material if they miscarried or had an abortion. Um, He and Paul Ryan were both uh, big advocates of kind of, quote unquote, sanctity of human life legislation or fetal personhood uh, legislation. So long before Trump came to power, there were these um, movements or I'll, I'll say movements rather than one movement because I don't think it's necessarily unified. But in our country today where people want to say that a single-celled zygote has certain rights that trump the rights of the the woman whose body contains it. Um, So it's not so different a world from our world. Yeah, and another way that, even though you started writing this before Trump, another resonance with what's going on with Trump is there's a phenomenon called the pink wall. Mm -hmm. Can, Can you tell us what the pink wall is? Sure. So... There ha- in Red Clocks, there's been an agreement between the governments of Canada and the U.S. that any woman who's seeking either an abortion or advanced fertility treatment in Canada, if found out, will be arrested and sent back to the U.S. for prosecution. Um, the wall itself is definitely um, wants to echo you know, Trump's idea about building a southern border wall. Um, and of course, the idea of appending the word pink to something 
uh, automatically makes it um, sort of have this uh, like mainstream feminized uh, resonance that seemed really funny to me with the word wall, like a pink wall. Um, <laughs> but uh, I also, I really wanted to play around with the idea of, you know, we have a president now who wants to seal off one of our borders, but what happens when we're actually trying to get out of the country into another country, and right. and that country wants to have a wall against us? So we so in in Red Clocks we follow four contemporary women uh, who, one way or the other, are affected by by these laws, and and we open the book with Roe, a, a high school teacher who's single and forty two years old, and who's trying but so far unsuccessfully to get pregnant uh, using fertility treatments. And her attempts have this added urgency because of the adoption laws. So if the fertility treatments don't work because she's single, she soon won't be allowed to adopt as a single single woman. Right. Uh, and in preparing for the interview, I was reading some of the uh, your conversations about this book leading to its launch and discovered that while you were writing it, you were also pursuing fertility treatments yeah. and, and um, what you called advanced reproductive technologies. And it made me imagine a, an origin story for this book, um, a personal pursuit of pregnancy using science as an, as an assistant against the backdrop of the political climate that you described. But I realized I was sort of fantasizing this origin story. So I, I was curious if you could tell us what brought these elements to to become a book project and, and maybe the ways your own personal pursuit of fertility treatments um, were used to the benefit of the project. Uh-huh, yeah. I think that there's a sort of doubled origin story in the sense that years before I started writing the book, I um, was trying to become a single mom. Um, and that was the first time I encountered any kind of um, artificial insemination s- scenario. I mean, I had heard ab- about it, obviously, but... Um, I was living in New York and thinking, you know, I, I, I wasn't in a relationship and didn't particularly want to be in one uh, necessarily and thought, but I, I do want to have a kid. And uh, so that's when I started buying donor sperm on the Internet and uh, getting inseminated at this um, clinic near Columbus Circle in Manhattan. And a lot of uh, the biographer Rose experiences at her clinic and particularly with looking at other women and imagining their lives um, and and seeing the wedding rings on their fingers and thinking about um, how different their experience is from hers. That was um, pretty close to my experience at at the clinic that I went to. Um, And I didn't get pregnant then. And then some years later, I was in a relationship. Um, I still am. And uh, my partner and I um, were you know, I was experiencing infertility. And so that's when I did IVF, which is a more, uh, quite a more involved procedure than artificial insemination. Um, And that was around the time that, you know, I was doing this, some of this research and thinking, okay, so there are all these politicians saying, you know, IVF should be banned, and not just politicians, but, you know, people on the internet who are commenting on, you know, newspaper articles, if you can't have a baby the natural way, you shouldn't have one at all. And so it, it touched me in a pretty particular way then um, in, a, in a sort of raw way, and I had a lot of rage about it. Um, 
So those two different strands of experience, which are linked, obviously, but but were different, they both contributed to um, some of the questions I was pursuing in this novel. And when you talk about that comment, if you can't have a baby in a natural way, you shouldn't have a baby, do you, do you link that with sort of a more of an anti-science uh, orientation? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it, it remains something I'm, I feel really bewildered by and befuddled by because uh, there's so many scientific advances that people use to to cure problems um, that I, I hear no complaints about other I mean except for maybe a small subset of people say who if you had cancer you wouldn't do chemo because you just want to turn everything over to the will of God right that um, but even among people who wouldn't choose to do chemo themselves I've never heard someone say I think chemotherapy should be illegal I don't think if if you have cancer you better deal with it the natural way um, have you ever heard someone say that no yeah so certainly, um, there, and, and we're living in a time now, which, uh, as we know, is incredibly hostile to science and the idea of any kind of, um, you know, scientific fact or or hypothesis or exploration. And uh, it's pretty chilling to think about. Uh, but this was, I guess, my my personal uh, experience of that. Yeah. One of the things that sort of linked to this that I really loved about Red Clocks is the way you as an author, it feels like you're circumambulating this question of motherhood in relationship to womanhood um, with Roe, who's desperately wanting to get pregnant with the teenager, Maddie, who finds herself with an unwanted pregnancy with Susan, who is probably the most conventional character um, in a family scenario with a husband and two children. And as you, you circle this question, it feels like you're pushing back against the idea of motherhood as a completion of womanhood or uh, or necessarily even leading to fulfillment at all in some cases, um, and that none of these scenarios are necessarily pathways to happiness or misery for that matter. Mm-hmm. I, I really hope that that um, comes across in the book because it, it, it certainly is a continuing area of curiosity and inquiry for me about like, how do we get to this, you know, come to a place where we and we and by that, I mean, not just sort of cis women, but you know, anyone alive in the world gets to a place where, okay, in order to be a real woman, again, whatever that means, you know, you need to have the experience of childbirth or, um, or adopting or, or sort of nurturing somehow in a very, you know, private ownership kind of way. Um, and because I have had to ask that question of myself so much in my life, like, why do I want to have a kid? Like, do I want to have a kid? What, where, where is this desire coming from? And I think, um, you know, since my experience with that, that, that first set of, you know, I'm going to buy this sperm and, and inseminate myself, and it's going to be great. And, you know, anyone in my life who would have said, you know, but it's going to be really hard. I mean, and a lot of people did say that to me. And I got pretty angry at that, too. You know, it's that sense of what are you buying into the notion that everyone has to be in a couple or, you know, have um, in order for something not to be hard, right? Um, What I hope happens in the book is not a closing down on that question, but an opening up of it and and 
not reaching any resolution about it. Um, I think where I struggled the most with that non-resolving was with the character of Susan, the wife, because um, during the drafting process, I was I could see how easy it would be to make her into a caricature or this sort of very unlikable kind of character that you'd be put off by. And, and that was not my goal, but neither did I want to give her some kind of triumphant awareness at the end that as the mother in the conventional sense of right. of the way we perceive of motherhood culturally exactly because she too is saddled with this the fact that she for her whole life had this desire she wanted to have kids and to live with a man who was the father of those kids and she's doing it and she has all these suicidal ideations about like driving her and her kids off um off a cliff Quite literally. That's part of what's interesting too is uh, you have Ro who who wants kids and hasn't been able to have a child so far, and Susan who who really wanted kids and has kids. And you think there could be solidarity potentially among these different women, the the four contemporary women. But you could imagine. I mean, there's that moment when Ro is at a faculty meeting and she overhears someone say, "You don't really become an adult until you've had a child." Mm-hmm. And um, of course, that's particularly shocking to hear for her. And um, but you could imagine Susan subscribing to that vision. So yeah. it's it's uh, you don't really get the sense that there's any sort of um, unifying thing happening around all these struggles as we read them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thrown into the mix, of course, is the notion of competitiveness or um, rivalry in any kind of friendship. But I, I I'm especially interested in watching how that manifests in a really close female friendship, which with Roe and Susan, you're seeing them kind of at the disintegrating end of their friendship. But, um, you know, one of the reasons I love the Elena Ferrante quartet is because you get to watch over the course of so many pages and years this this friendship and and the jealousies and competitions as well as the, the sort of really fierce loyalties um, between these two women. You get to watch those play out. Can you talk a little bit about um, writing about the taboos of motherhood? It feels like you you really go there in this book in a way that I that I appreciated for for one um, describing the way the female body changes after after pregnancy, um, things that uh, women confront that are never spoken about in that regard, and then also thoughts that cross a mother's mind, uh, wanting to hit their kid or wanting to drive off the edge of the highway Mm -hmm. with their kids in the car, Uh, Mm -hmm. which I imagine those thoughts in a fleeting sense um, happen for a lot of people Mm -hmm. and are never spoken. So uh, how how was that process? Was that something that just came uh, pretty easily to you as part of the, the creating of the characters or... Um, that's a good, uh, did it come easily? I think so. I mean, I, I, and I think that in future work, I would love to go there even more. Um, uh, I, it's certainly been interesting to, to see just in, you know, my, my son recently turned five and in the, um, sort of six years or so of, of pregnancy or, or parenthood, the, the sheer sort of you know, gaping awareness I've gotten about what doesn't get talked about has has been really interesting. And even before that, you know, I, several years ago, I had a miscarriage. And um, after that happened, I learned that a bunch of my friends had had miscarriages that I 
I had no idea about. And um, and we kind of talked about, yeah, why isn't this spoken about? Like, why is this a shameful thing? And um, there are a lot of um, things about parenthood, but I think particularly motherhood that w- that, that get sort of romanticized and mythologized, and um, including uh, modes of knowledge, right? Like, oh, you'll you'll figure it out that a mother knows. And you know, I and many people I know have been at the point like. I have no frigging idea what to do here. I don't know. I don't have an instinct. Um, you know, for instance, I know a, a bunch of people I'm close to who weren't able to breastfeed and um, felt like failures, like their bodies had failed and that they were not doing what they were supposed to do. And what would happen if we actually looked at the sort of history of human experience and looked at how very many women across time were probably not able to breastfeed? and. Hmm. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Lainey Zumas about her latest book, Red Clocks, from Little Brown. So this, the scenario in Red Clocks, where any gains women have made re- regarding control over their own bodies has been swiftly and emphatically reversed, inevitably draws comparisons to Margaret Atwood, to Handmaid's Tale, which is, I think, even referenced in the in the jacket copy of, of the book. Yes. Um, and I'm sure you're going to be asked this question, um, not just here. Uh, it's interesting to see that book revisited now with the TV show and, and people reacquainting themselves and also coinciding with the Trump administration. Uh, and I read a tweet recently about, about the reemergence of Handmaid's Tale that went something like, in the 1980s, Handmaid's Tale seemed improbably extreme. Today, instead, it's the hats they are wearing that don't seem very realistic. <laughs> Um, do you consider this book in, in conversation with that book or with Atwood in, in some fashion? Sure. I, yeah, I do. Um, it, it, not so much because of what I was thinking about when I drafted it, because, I, you know, that's a book I haven't read since I was in high school and, um, I'm in my forties now, so it's been a while. Um, however, I, I think that what happens when we we make fiction is we're already uh, inheriting so many strands and and motifs and um, questions from people who have written before us. And she's someone who uh, has given a great deal to national conversations about um, women and the future and, and our, our, the sort of body politic. And so even if I sort of personally, my individual self wasn't consciously thinking about Mar- Margaret Atwood while I wrote Red Clocks, certainly Red Clocks inherits um, a lot from The Handmaid's Tale um, and from Atwood's work generally. I mean, uh, she has another novel surfacing that I wrote about um, in my undergraduate thesis about w- which which was interested in narratives about female artists and how uh, those narratives were often troubled by this notion that the, what, a, what a woman's really supposed to produce is like another human being, you know, the, to, to sort of like replicate this, you know, create more workers, create more consumers, right, rather than create these individual works of art that can be themselves somehow commodified. Um, so her novel Surfacing uh, is, a, is about a, a woman who's an artist. And um, so I, I feel indebted to that book as well. Hmm. Yeah. Is that the book where is the woman in living in the wild? Yeah, she's a children's book illustrator and she kind of goes to figure stuff out and and 
you know, leaves quote unquote civilization to do it. Part of the reason I ask is because my, I think my favorite character is Jin Percival, Mm -hmm. uh, who in contrast to the other three is a forest dweller, um, a forest dwelling herbalist and forager. And she lives at least culturally, if not literally, and perhaps literally off the grid. Um, to me, she's this counterpoint to the lives of the other three. Um, and to the lives most of your readers probably have, I'm guessing. For one, she's living with an entirely different set of rules and a different belief system, uh, which is reflected in her daily tasks and the language that she uses. Um, and in interviews, you said that you thought of her as a young crone. Mm. And I was curious if you could speak to what you mean by a young crone and why you wanted Jin to be a young crone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think of the the crone figure as um, often, I mean, as per, you know, dictionary definition, often it's like a woman in middle age or over 40 or an elderly woman, uh, someone whose body is kind of no longer the fresh, nubile, sexually attractive um, body that that more traditional femininity would, you know, ask a body to be. Um, so Jin is 33, 32, 33. Um, so she's kind of on the younger side of, of a crone spectrum. But she has really chosen to remove herself from the social order in a lot of ways um, and does not wish to be, you know, a figure of connection or attraction or uh, really anything at all to other people, um, which makes her seem, I think, pretty threatening and confusing to, you know, people who know her. And that's why she's known in the little town as a witch. Um, It's not just because she heals people. It's because she she really has said, you know, my hair has twigs in it and I'm going to go to the library and kind of mutter to myself and, and be okay with that. And so I, I think in uh, in this book and just in, in my work in general right now, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, notions of soloness and singleness and um, apartness that are not uh, framed as a problem in need of a solution, but are really framed as like the desirable end, right? Um, because I think, you know, we have certain male figures, you know, you can think of Thoreau or uh, other, you know, Jack Kerouac going up onto a mountain. And, you know, there's this kind of heroic element to leaving society and, and going out on your own. But I think when a woman does it, it, it has really different, uh, a different valence and is often more like, what the hell is going on? Like, why are you doing that? And uh, you're not going to be safe or, you know, something's wrong with you. Like, are you mentally troubled? You know, th- those kinds of questions, which some people have about the mender. And that's what's, I think, adds this really great tension is because when she's very othered, um, she's a object of ridicule or sort of a bemused curiosity. But also when people in the town uh, run out of medical options, they end up going into the forest and yeah. finding her for for advice and, and treatment. Yeah. And so there's this weird tension there with the same, she's helping some of these same people who are in a way like uh, reinforcing that sort of stigma stigma on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that when I was revising the book, especially you know in the sort of wake of the 2016 election, um, I was thinking a lot about what happens when 
you have things, you have suddenly a government or a healthcare system or an education system or, or some sort of um, kind of codified system that is really failing a lot of people. Um, and where do you go? Like whose knowledge do you draw on then? Um, and often it's the the knowledge and resources of um, really marginalized people. And and I think kind of unrelated to this Mender character, but we've seen that in our own politics with, uh, you know, which activists have, have done the most in terms of, um, you know, resisting uh, changes to Obamacare. And, you know, you there's so many disabled activists who have been at the sort of forefront of that, uh, of that fight and um, activists of color. Like, I, I think it, it is that sense of like when things get really bad, um, people who have privilege and power or, you know, who used to have power become more willing to listen to people they weren't listening to before. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the ways you've woven the history of witches into this book? So, uh, so Red Clocks takes place near Salem, Oregon, and yeah. you sort of play with the, this connection to Salem, Massachusetts in the book. And there's some questions about Jin's lineage, uh, the herbalist. Uh, but could you um, maybe tell us um, what you were bring, what you were researching, and what you were, why you were researching it, and and weaving it into the mm-hmm. into the story? Yeah, the the fact that the capital of Oregon is a town called Salem was a really happy and convenient accident for me because um, originally the book was set in some sort of unspecified north. Northeast Atlantic coast, like maybe the coast of Canada. And even back then I was thinking, okay, could they have a reason to go to Salem, Massachusetts? Like, can I get that word in there somehow? And then I take a job at Portland State and move to Oregon and Salem, Oregon. Um, so that was just a bit of luck. But I um, I read a bunch of transcripts of the Salem witch trials, Salem, Massachusetts, and, um, and originally um, had some of that language in um, Jin Percival's courtroom trial. And it it was very pleasurable for me to do that. It didn't serve the book that well. And so a lot, most of that got taken out in revision. But what I was interested to, to kind of notice and maybe import somehow is the sense of a, th- a theatrical kind of um, performance that is already, like the, the outcome has already been decided. Right. That as soon as, you know, in the late 1600s, like you, someone had said, this woman has done witchery. This woman has consorted with the devil. Like that made it so in the eyes of, of people who, around. So it, the trial itself was not an actual trial. Um, and that's different um, in this book. And without, you know, giving too much away, I think that there um, are ways in which I wanted to add actually kind of a more comedic element into her trial that that stuff comes out basically from the mouth of a fool um, in in this particular trial. But can yeah. can you speak to um, maybe even things that aren't in the book, but things that you yeah. uncovered? Like there were some things you mm-hmm. mentioned, like I wrote down. I don't know if you made this up or if this is something you discovered, but the witch cakes. Uh, so oh, the, that's true. Yes. Yeah. So baked cakes yeah. baked with rye flour and urine from girls stricken by spells. Yes. And you'd feed it to a dog. And if the dog got upset or died what, what I, I can't now i can't remember so if, what i have is when uh, the dog ate when the dog ate it a witch would suffer so oh, yeah. if the dog yeah. ate the witch cake uh-huh. then the witch who cast a spell on the girls whose urine is in the cake would groan and so you would know that she was a witch so right. she'd be nearby and she'd groan and you could 
catcher. That's right. Yeah, that was a thing. Yeah. That somehow happened. Yes, the witch cake. And also just the idea of rye flour and urine and how that would taste. I can kind of imagine (laughs) like a particular combo of that. Um, Yeah, that or and also, you know, there's a sort of um, whether it's literal or symbolic uh, foremother of Jen Percival is this uh, witch from Massachusetts named Goody Hallett, um, who had been a 16 year old beauty who who got seduced by a pirate and um, and then he leaves her and so her revenge against him is to in various ways you know she used to trick ships to to come closer to shore where they would crash on the rocks by tying lights onto whales tails and um, that was the the sort of story about her and so I, I was uncovering all this cool stuff about this Goody Hallett figure um, and I wanted Jen to be her descendant. Did you know of Goody before the book? No, I didn't. No. That, Yeah, that particular one I didn't. Yeah, there were some really discreet little details like that. This one isn't really around w- witches, but you have this detail around Scottish virgins, mm-hmm. and they would douse charred peat moss with cow urine and hang it in the doorway. And then whatever color the urine turned to the peat moss, it, that would be the color of their future husband's hair. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of urine. There's a lot of urine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But what I, that particular one, the peat moss husband hair foretelling, I mean, how many varieties of hair color can there really be? You know, like what would you actually, what kind of, how would you use that information? Like, oh, he has blonde hair. Right. You know? Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. What, one of the things that stuck out around this, this the witch aspect in this book, just with what's going on right now with the, all the, the Me Too movement and sexual harassment is, I mean, obviously there was an irony and there is an irony um, around these men often using the word witch hunt. We're yeah. scared there's going to be a witch hunt yeah. against us, um, which is really underscored by this book, how impossible it is to use that word as a man yeah. in that context. Yeah, there was that great Lindy West piece in the New York Times, and the headline was, yes, there is a witch hunt. I am a witch, and I am hunting you. And yeah, I mean, the the word witch itself is so freighted with, you know, all kinds of cliches and stereotypes, and um, and I think, you know, it, it's also s- sort of the figure of the witch is, is kind of having a little renaissance of trendiness right now, um, which, you know that's cool. Like, I'd rather that be trendy than, you know, the, the frat boy identity is now trending or something. But, um, but yeah, with witch hunt, it, it's, all, you know, also the fact that uh, in American politics, you know, we think back to the, the quote unquote, witch hunt of the McCarthy era. Um, and some of those same, you know, tactics that uh, Joe McCarthy was using, I really see happening in, in the Trump administration, you know, like, like creating paranoia and and make pitting people against each other and um, sort of changing the rules about like what's okay to to do and um, and so that sort of doubles or triples the irony of of using witch hunt in that mm. context. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Lainey Zumas about her latest book, Red Clocks, and I think this is a good time to hear a little bit of the pros and the reason. Sure. I want to do two little excerpts because one of the pleasures as a reader of reading this book is it feels like you have these different sets of word banks Mm. that you're juxtaposing with each other and you go very much into the 
to the music or, or syntax of these different worlds. So we have the, the language of reproductive science, of political legislation, of polar explorations, which we'll get to talking about soon, and the language of medicinal plants, where you describe a particular herbal tea as tasting like water buried underground for months in a bowl of rotted wood, swum through by worms, spat into by a burrowing vole, which I thought was amazing. So if if you don't mind reading the, the first paragraph on page eight and then the first paragraph on page 182, sure. and just so people can hear the differences in, in sound between the two. She drives west on Highway 22 into dark hills dense with hemlock, fir, and spruce. Oregon has the best trees in America, soaring and shaggy-winged, alpine sinister. Her tree gratitude mutes her doctor resentment. Two hours from his office, her car crests the cliff road and the church steeple juts into view. The rest of town follows, hunched in rucked hills sloping to the water. Smoke coils from the pub chimney, fishing nets pile on the shore. In Newville, you can watch the sea eat the ground over and over, unstopping. Millions of abyssal thalassic acres. The sea does not ask permission or wait for instruction. It doesn't suffer from not knowing what on earth exactly it is meant to do. Today its walls are high, white lather torn, crashing hard at the sea stacks. Angry sea, people say, but to the biographer the ascribing of human feeling to a body so inhumanly itself is wrong. The water heaves up for reasons they don't have names for. And so this is part of a, the Mender section elsewhere in the book. She is come from walking on the bottom of the sea. There the tiny eyeless and the footless walked with she. Ran with she the finned and flattened, sailed with she the lungless. Swayed with she the phantom grasses, lantern fishes, wolf eels. To the north bathed viperfish who did not even see she. To the south flew goblin sharks who did not even eat she. Toed a wolf eel, thumbed a skate, fingered the sucker of a cockeyed squid. I know you were a, a student of Noy Holland, who, along with a whole bunch of other writers, Ben Marcus, Sam Lipsight, Christine Scott, Amy Hempel, were students of Gordon Lish. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that unites these writers and also you among them is that they're prose writers with us, with us, I would call a poetics, uh, with an attending to the music within or and or between sentences. And I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about anything that you feel like you've gleaned from her in particular that that manifests itself in this book? Mm. So much um, I've learned from Noy Holland um, and I'm so grateful to her for, it was in her workshops in grad school that I, I sort of first heard someone put a, not necessarily a name to, but, but have a way of articulating something that I'd been thinking about vaguely and imperfectly in my own work uh, about acoustics and rhythm and repetition and um, and sort of sonic affiliation. And, and that's something that, that Noy really foregrounded in, in her teaching as, as well as her work, which is incredible and, and sort of beautiful and almost painful ways, you know, because there is so much attention to um, the the kind of tactile elements of sentences and uh, and she was also 
someone who who really pushed me to to think about syntax and and that's certainly a thing that you know lish writers are are great at doing is is looking at how to maybe uncouple or or untether word order from the the really familiar kind of received patterns that our ear is looking for and um, in the passage I just read from Red Clocks, just substituting uh, the word she with her, you know, putting that that pronoun in it in the wrong place, does a lot of work. That um, and it's not an accident, obviously, that it's a the you know the female sort of subject pronoun. Um, what happens when it, it is moved or, or it shows up in the in the wrong place? How does that sound? And um, the the kind of energy that that emerges from that. When Kyle Miner came on the show, one of the things that he said was that studying poetry was the most transformative thing for his fiction. Mm -hmm. And I've had several listeners actually reach out in the years since that interview um, to say that that was also ended up being true for they took that to heart and that ended up being true for them as well. And yeah. do, do you have any any thoughts to chime in on that? On the, Only that I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, Kyle's right. I mean, and and. Again, with with Noi, I think I mean she started out as a poet, and um, I think that that uh, made her um, such a good teacher for me um, be because she could sort of point to to non narrative and non uh, sense making um, language to look at. But also, you know, I was lucky to be at UMass Amherst when Jim Tate, Dara Wire, Peter Gizzy were all teaching there, and the classes I took with them. Uh, were just as important as as workshops. You know, it was in one of Jim Tate's classes that I read Ann Carson's The Glass Essay, which is what remains one of my favorite poems and uh, was important to me in, in helping me figure out how to write the listeners. And, and also um, that's where I was introduced for the first time to the poet Frank Stanford, whom I love, um, and who is, is a total storyteller in his poems, but... Uh, but resists the uh, kind of getting to lunch from dinner, getting to dinner from lunch uh, element of a lot of narrative. Yeah, well, I want to talk about narrative now because obviously this book shares an attentiveness to language as people just heard, like your other books, The Listeners and Farewell Navigator. But what feels new about this book is that it also feels like it's a page turner and that there's been a attention particularly paid to plot in relationship to the building of stakes and tension. And you've talked before multiple times in interviews about your ambivalence about plot and also your trouble grappling with it at times. Mm -hmm. Can can you speak to that previous ambivalence and also your current em embracing of, of it? Sure. Um, I, I think one source of prior ambivalence and, and you know still present ambivalence is the ways in, in, in which plot sort of takes over or can take over the discovery process both for a writer and reader and uh, and shut it down, right? So that if, if a writer goes into a story thinking, okay, I've got to follow Freitag's triangle here, I've got to, you know, develop this and this, and then we have this one uh, sort of crisis and then the denouement, what isn't discovered or revealed or explored because, you know, you're trying to be really loyal to that trajectory. And then for the reader, I think... Um, to to read only for what will happen next, what will happen next, um, can steal away some of the biggest pleasures of of reading, uh, whether it's the language itself or kind of 
character um, strangeness, you know, that doesn't have to do with plot. Um, so when I was revising Red Clocks, um, I worked with a brilliant editor named Lee Boudreau, who uh, kind of helped me to think about plot in a different way um, from how I'd been thinking about it, because she really put um, the focus not on, you know, okay, we have to get, do the traditional thing of like, you know, ramping up to something and then, you know, having this big blowout resolution. But she talked about pressure and what was putting pressure on characters. And and that felt sort of meaningfully different from simply, uh, okay, like what's the next plot point and how are we going to, you know, tie up this plot? It was more what forces, whether internal, external, you know, based on incident or based on, you know, pain or other kind of emotional um, energy, what is what is pushing and forcing the character into a different place from where she was standing five minutes ago? Um, she, and Lee Boudreau also talked about closing doors on characters and, and not leaving doors open. Um, and if I had heard that before, I, I couldn't remember hearing it. I mean, it was it, for me, that was sort of this new idea of uh, rather than have, say, a character make a choice or go on a trip or go, you know, say something to another person, have that be consequential and and make it so that that character can then no longer go back and do a sort of easy redo, right? Um, and it doesn't have to be in, in some huge dramatic way, but it could simply be, you know, once you've uttered these three words to another person, the air between you is never going to be the same. Mm. And... Um, so I was just, again, so lucky to have her as the editor for this book because she could see, you know, for Ro or Maddie or, or Jen or Susan, like, what if you went a little more through that door and then closed it behind that, that woman? What would happen? Well, I want to I talk about another thing that, that I think is surprising and unconventional and defamiliarizing about Red Clocks is, is the aspect of naming. Um, this was true in the listeners, where no one in the family is allowed to say the name of the person who's died. But here in Red Clocks, you create attention around naming in a, in a really interesting formal way. Each of the characters has a name, but they also have a name that is a function. So uh, Susan is the wife, Maddie the daughter, and Jin is the mender. Um, but the unusual choice you make is that whenever we are in the chapter, in the point of view of a given person, they're only referred to by the name that is their function, yeah. and we only discover their other name, their given name, when they're referred to in someone else's chapter. So when we're in Maddie's chapter, she's always going to be referred to as the daughter, which is seems like the um, counterintuitive choice because mm -hmm. it sort of puts us farther away in, in one respect from her yeah. while we're in the chapter that's purportedly closer to her. So what what's going on there with with those those names i um kind of did that inversion um because i wanted to see what would happen when um the character's sort of point of view chapter you know because it's all third person but you know you, you have a close third on so it's it is pretty private to their experience um is forced to um contend with other people's labels for them um, in much in the same way that, you know, any one of us can kind of go through our lives and, oh, my name is Lainey and I have this individual self and I'm so special and unique. And yet, in a lot of ways to so many other people, I am just the neighbor or 
someone's mom or a teacher or, you know, uh, so, someone stand in line in front of you. And um, that sort of distance from ourselves or, or the fact of not being able to to claim a complex identity, um, I wanted to see what would happen at the level of the sentence when, as you say, you know, in a in a chapter about this daughter character, she is the daughter. And um, so it, it was kind of just a way to disturb that uh, more mm, predictable link between a name and an identity. Um, Did you go down any rabbit holes around naming and relationship to spell casting and witches at all? In my head, I did, certainly. Um, uh, and because, as you say, in the, in the listeners, there was that sense that if you said the name of this dead sister, dead daughter, like something bad would happen. And um, and that was actually based on my own father's experience when he lost his brother. Like no one in the family was allowed to say the brother's name. And it was there's a lot of superstition around what would happen if you said his name. Um, but uh, actually, there were there were a lot there was a lot more play with names in the book in earlier iterations. For instance, when whenever Jen Percival was thinking about a certain herb, you would get the Latin name of that herb, and then she would sort of play around with the Latin names and mix mix them up somehow. And I think I came to believe that that was interesting more to me than it would be to anyone else. And mm-hmm. um, uh, but but God, yeah, I mean, it, whether it's the idea of a spell or, or, or casting something or, or na- even the, the fact that, you know, sexual harassment wasn't a, a phrase in our sort of national lexicon until really recently. And so what happened before then, like if someone was experiencing what we know today as sexual harassment, how, how did they even think about that? If, if you can't name the thing, what do you do with it? Yeah. Oh. When, when Talia Field was, was in town, uh, for between the covers, and she did her performative public reading that, which was you, amazing, which yeah. you were a part of. You you brought a draft of of Red Clocks in progress, and had self selected some portions that specifically had to do with animals. Uh, Talia Fields' book links the status and treatment of animals in nineteenth century France with the status and treatment of women, and she links their. She links their abuse and also portrays the women at the forefront of the defense of animals and animal rights. And I was I was wondering what function you see animals from Jen Percival's own animals to the beached whales on the coastline. What what role are they playing in Red Clocks? Because they are, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know if they're foregrounded, but they're they're recurrent in the book, mm-hmm. um, and it feels like. Um, I'm just curious what, what, what's happening there. Yeah. Uh, with the whales, um, especially, I think they came into the book at the beginning just because I like whales and I like thinking about them and, uh, different sort of mythologies around them. And yet whales are kind of troublesome as, because they're so symbolic and there, there's a pretty, uh, narrow little set of, meanings that that whales usually have when people talk about them they're these you know gentle giants whose whose murder is is telling us about our own sort of rotten like inhumanity and um as with many things like uh anim- animals get put in the service of you know human beings thinking about themselves and that was 
something I was thinking about in writing the book, and and I probably fall prey to, to doing that at, sometimes too. And I, but I I really wanted to know what would happen if, say, someone like the mender, her animals are her companions, and she you know, she has a, a connection to them that is is really real and valid and, and ordinary and daily. Um, whereas the daughter has these dreams of becoming a marine biologist and saving whales and going to the Faroe Islands and saving the pilot whale dolphins who were slaughtered there. And uh, But but she st- still has this a, a pretty reductive or, or simple idea of what that would mean, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... Does that start to answer your question? It does. It also just made me think of that, of the weird fact that I learned, I think both in this book and Tolly Field's book, that animals were put on trial as part of the witch trials. Yes. Which just seems so bizarre. Yeah. And for centuries, you know, in Europe, I mean, especially in in France and Germany, like this was a thing. And sometimes animals would have lawyers and um, would there would actually be a trial, but the, yeah, the idea that an ant, like a, a mule could have as much agency as a, the man who is found having sex with the mule and they both need to be hanged is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and another example of, you know, putting the, the kind of anxiety of a group of people, whether it's like the village where, that had a drought that year, like where does that anxiety go onto the body of a woman, onto the body of an animal? Uh, certainly not, you know, yeah, those are those are popular places to put anxiety. Well, some of the most amazing animal scenes are with the one character we haven't yet discussed, um, the obscure 19th century female polar explorer, Ivor. Um, did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. I, I think so. You think so? Yeah. Before we talk about the polar explorer, I'd love for you to read a section sure. that's animal-specific on page 349. She is menstruating when she dies. Strips of burlap wadded into her crotch unfurl in the water, making a brief red cloud. A Greenland shark smells the blood from two miles off, turns in a slow, silent arc, and aims his sleek bulk in the blood's direction. Crumbs of her skin drift up into the brine channels. Reindeer fur and flannel threads catch on ice dendrites reaching down from the undershelf. After the apex predators have had their fill, the smaller ones feast. Hagfish, lobsters, limpets, clams, brittle stars. Then the amphipods, the bone-eating worms, the bacteria. A narwhal hunting for air holes drags its shadow across her. Krill gnaw green blooms of algae off the ceiling of ice. The explorer comes, over time, apart. Weeks after digesting Minerva Dutter's flesh, the Greenland shark is caught near the western coast of Iceland. The fishermen lop off his head and bury his body in gravel and sand, heap it with stones that press out the shark's natural poisons, urea and trimethylene oxide. After two or three months, the fish, by now fermented, is sliced and hung in a shed to dry. The pieces grow a brown crust, a shocking smell. When citizens of Reykjavik eat the shark on December 25th, 1885, they are eating Ivor Minerva Dutcher. She did not leave behind money or property or a book or a child, but her corpse kept alive creatures who, in turn, kept other creatures alive. I've been listening to Lainey Zumas read from Red Clocks. 
So Ro, the, the, the woman the book op- opens with, she, the woman pursuing fertility treatment, she's writing a biography on, on Ivor. And periodically we get sections on Ivor presented to us in a different font, sometimes with words crossed out, and often including these really wonderfully strange recipes mm-hmm. or uh, how to skin a puffin or how to cook pilot whale meat. So I, I, I would love you to introduce us to her a little bit. Um, tell us about the polar explorer, as she's referred to in her own chapters, and why Roe is particularly fascinated in writing a biography of her among mm-hmm. among any Anyone, number of yeah. options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Ivor Minerva Dutcher uh, is born in the Faroe Islands in the 1840s um, to a shepherd, and, and she... Uh, doesn't go the sort of traditional route of becoming a, a wife and mother and staying on um, the island and and she kind of escapes and teaches herself uh, hydrology and she's particularly interested in polar hydrology and ice and uh, she becomes um, she comes to have a theory about why certain kinds of ice certain shapes freeze and close together faster than others, which is potentially really useful for ships that are navigating Arctic waters. And um, she stows away on a couple a couple of boats. And, and the biographer's interest in her, on the one hand, she's creating her. You know, like I, I want there to be a sense that half of the, st- the stuff she's writing, she's making up even because, you know, she has these journals, but what does she really know about this woman's experience, right? Um, but there's the the notion of sort of salvaging, rescuing, revealing, and restoring that I think uh, a lot of um, women want to do for uh, other women who have come before us and who whose stories have not been preserved or have been covered over or distorted or um, simply not told at all. Uh, and so there's a kind of rescue and recovery effort that the biographer is is trying to do and um and that sort of pairs with her own sense that like god i've been working on this book for 10 years and i can't make much progress and is this ever going to be published and the, the sort of more um maybe familiar uh questions that that a writer might have of why am i even doing this like why am i telling this story right so i wanted there to be that that kind of earnestness and and solidity of um of desire paired with just self-doubt and to be clear the polar explorer isn't just a forgotten uh colorful historical figure who happens to be a woman and so maybe forgotten because of her being a woman but she was also a groundbreaking scientist whose whose research gets erased yes it has to be published under a man's name yeah. Mm-hmm. So part of that recovery is a reclamation of of the work that she did. That's as right. A, as a the intellectual labor and the the actual uh, yeah the the contribution that she made to science, which was yeah yeah I did a little bit of you know studying up on different scientific medals and honors that you know the Royal Society had given, and they're uh, you know I mean it's not surprising looking at all the causes and conditions that would prevent this. Um, from happening, but there's so few women who do get kind of acknowledged for their scientific uh, contributions. And I think that putting that question in the space of the Arctic in particular was interesting to me because that tends to be the space of like this very kind of masculine, like let let us go into peril and have our 
you know, hard bodies be assailed by the the wind and the cold and the polar bears and and see if we can conquer it. You know, it's really about conquering and and colonizing a space that is uh, scary. Um, and and what happens when you put like a a female figure into that? Yeah, it made me the reclamation project of Roe, and I I I know it's reductive, but I. I feel a, a particular connection between you and Roe. Um, but I do too. Yeah. But um, that reclamation project reminds me of that page on your website, uh, Gratitudes, where you have the images of all the women, um, writers, artists, and otherwise that you have gratitude towards as for you as an artist. Um, I, and I encourage people to go look there. Um, I'd like to, I'm curious about your particular interest in polls because I think of the history of, Poles in literature, mm-hmm. especially in, in the 19th century. Um, so we have Edgar Allan Poe's only novel, mm-hmm. um, uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, and we have Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and we have Jules Verne, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Uh, and but, but what's interesting about all those times is that at that time the the pole was an imaginative place. Right. We didn't know what was there, and so cool. these yeah. these artists were these authors were projecting uh, a world onto the poles. And there's all these really fascinating 19th century mythologies that connect to it. Um, but what what is your fascination with the poles in the 21st century? Um, it, probably part of my fascination can't really be quantified in a very articulate way because it's simply a, what happens when I imagine what it would feel like to be so stranded and alone and... Um, away from comfort that it, that's a more sort of visceral thing but I also think it's a lot about um, that's a, one of the spaces that is you know signaling constantly danger 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 like look what we are doing to this planet and the, the fact that in writing about this 19th century explorer who was making it easier for ships to kind of go up into the Arctic and and create trade routes like with uh, you know, other parts of, of the world, like all of those things, which were seen as such wonderful developments, had serious consequences um, f- in terms of helping destroy the earth. And uh, that's still happening. And so if we think about like um, oil and gas and, and and what is still being taken from, from those areas and uh, how it, it's almost like a you know, there's the whole canary in the coal mine. It's like the the Arctic, I think of it as like the coal mine itself, you know, that that's the, but we're looking at the coal mine and it's already telling us what's, what's wrong. Have you read Poe's novel? I haven't. Uh-uh. Because, I've read about it, but I haven't. Yeah. I mean, cause it's, it, it's, I mean, there, it's playing with the idea that as you get closer to the poles, if you get past a certain amount of ice, it actually gets warmer and the the right. birds are migrating in the opposite direction. And there was a theory at the time that the Garden of Eden might be at the pole. But there was also the theory that a lot of people had that there were holes in the <laughs> pole that went into the earth. But he had this really, um, it didn't feel really examined, just disturbing racial component to that book where you discover this island of super black people near the pole and then this really bizarre supernatural very white creature at the hole when you get to the hole at the pole um but in contrast to poe i felt like i red clocks did something with race that i thought was really interesting and i i've brought this up 
around my conversation with Claudia Rankin probably too many times on this show, but um, when she came on the show, uh, she talked about how white writers almost never write about race while staying in their bodies, that they imagine themselves as as the slave or that the or as an African or um, but they didn't move around in with their body being white and um, confronting questions of race or very few did. And she did name some on the show and I didn't recognize their names. But um, this was the first book since that conversation where I really felt like uh, it was doing that. And um, where I was aware of, of whiteness, not as a default universal neutral category, but as a race with all the implications that come with, with this. Um, and without that being the focus of the book, it feels like this really it, it doesn't feel like it requires that much in terms of words. Um, and I remember, like, uh, again, Claudia Rankin it recently had, taught, had shown, like, a poem by a student um, where she said, what if you, you included knowledge that this was going on at the same time as this poem and, and revised with incorporating, you know, let's say there was a race riot or, or what, whatever that was going on that was excluded from the poem. Mm. Um you do this. You do this in the book, and I, I, I'd like you to read um, this one really brief paragraph on page twenty about the history of Salem, mm. and then sort of expand from here because I feel like this one paragraph, which is is not indicative of the book as a whole, does this enormous amount of work. So, if you don't mind reading it, I'd like to talk about it. Sure. The daughter grew up in a city born of the terror of the vastness of space where the streets lie tight in a grid. The men who built Salem, Oregon, were white Methodist missionaries who followed white fur trade trappers to the Pacific Northwest, and the missionaries were less excited than the trappers by the wildness foaming in every direction. They laid their town in a valley that had been fished, harvested, and winter camps for centuries by the Kalapuya people, who in the 1850s were forced onto reservations by the U.S. government. In the stolen valley, the whites huddled and crouched, made everything smaller. Downtown Salem is a box of streets Britishly named, church and cottage and market, summer and winter and east. The way you repeat the word white rather than assuming it, it makes me think back to the power of naming. Um, so when you say the word white later, when you call a character white-skinned, which you do, we think back to the origins of, of Oregon and um, the origins of Salem. And again, when we learn of the Hell's Canyon Massacre, uh, which you briefly mentioned, or about the Chinese laborers that built the, la the railroad, it too points to the whiteness of our characters, because most of these characters in this book are, are white. Yeah. Um, even when 99% of the book isn't directly about this, I feel like we're placed, not just in geography, but in the, the history of what happened in that place that these people are moving around in, rather than sort of moving around in sort of a dreamscape. Mm -hmm. And it also makes me think of Toni Morrison, who rejects the phrase people of color for for people who aren't people of color. Um, and she she maintains that it that it maintains the default as white yeah. and that white transcends other colors rather than simply being one of them. And in a way I feel like Red Clox um, makes white a color. Mm if that makes sense. And I, I don't know if this is, if if there was something you were doing very consciously or if this yes. ended up. It, Absolutely, yeah. I, yeah. And 
um, your reading of it is, I'm, I'm happy to hear it because I, I think in, um, especially in the parts of this book that were written after I'd moved to Oregon, which is most of, you know, I moved here in 2011. Um, I, I was thinking a lot about what it meant to, to live in a place that is known as, you know, the whitest city in America, the whitest state in America, and, and how whiteness operates in the history of Oregon. And a lot of stuff about our history here I, I didn't know before moving here. Um, just so many um, race laws that were on the books for years, like until the 1920s, some of them, and or the 1970s. Um, and so in the character of the daughter in particular, I really wanted to... Um, you know, try and write a character who's kind of coming to be like aware of her own whiteness and and what it does in the world, right? So, you know, one of the ways that happens for her is that her best friend, who's African American, um, uh, f- sort of has a, a particular experience that is different from what she would have had if if she were white, like the daughter. Um, but it's, and again, it's it's tricky because I, I think that. Um, and this is something I talk about with students in, in class a lot. Like, there are certain things in writing that it would be a lot easier if you just avoid it altogether. You know, a, a, there's a kind of messiness and um, doubt uh, in, for me, in in writing about race that I think is really necessary to um, stay with. Like, stay with that discomfort rather than thinking like, oh, is it too neat and tidy that the daughter's white and her friend Yasmin is black? Like, what if? you know, both of them were biracial and, you know, shared, you know, one parent's race and not another, you know, all those questions that proliferate. But um, in the end, it was something that uh, I'm trying to do throughout this book um, is, is locate the characters in that, uh, in that privilege and in the discomfort of that privilege. Yeah. I mean, even when the characters aren't necessarily aware of it, the fact that the that the narrative is is presenting these facts, which probably in total is one or two pages of the entire book, yeah. but spread out in very brief mentions. Yeah. Um, I was just shocked at how much of an effect it had, uh, like an outsized effect yeah. at changing the experience yeah. of reading it. Well, that's interesting too, and in, in, in the scope of a novel, I mean, this happens in, obviously in a short story too, but what you can make happen with accumulation, you know, and as you say, like, if something is deployed on page 20, the ways in which that is going to shade everything that comes after it. Well, on another note around, around um, race and gender and and class, there's also a a page of Rose notes from the Ivor uh, biography, where I feel like we see the limits of, of white feminism in the absence of a larger structural Mm. analysis where she wonders if her hero, a woman who succeeded where no woman was allowed to succeed, was through her research enabling more accessible drilling and resource extraction, more ways of theft from the non-whites in, in the polar regions who, who aren't mentioned. Um, and I thought that was, that was also done, and this sounds very, this could be done very heavy-handedly, but this is done in passing. Um, but it was very fascinating to have that introduced mm-hmm. to have a hero, the hero. I mean, this is clearly a hero yeah. in so many ways, yeah. but also with potential limitations of analysis. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's another um, tension that I think is 
kind of calls back to the the epigraph of this book, the Virginia Woolf quote, you know, the other lighthouse was true too. Nothing is simply one thing. Um, how hard and necessary it is to hold both of the, you know, two, three, 10, 20 um, conf- conflicting truths about someone in your head at once um, and how tempting it is not to do that. You know, like you have this really heroic person. Um, let's just kind of like cover over the fact that, you know, these other consequences were happening. And uh, it's it's so messy, you know. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question around the epigraph of, of the lighthouse. So I'll just say it for posterity, yeah. but it does feel like even though the book isn't about animals or about race or colonials, colonialism, it feels like by leaning deeply into the autonomy or lack thereof of women, that perhaps you're saying that if your eyes are open, it will lead to all these other things. That's what I wondered if the quote from the um, To the Lighthouse was about, mm. in the sense that- I love that. Yeah. that um, yeah, that it they're connected. Yeah, that intersectional kind of truth, like underneath a focus on this versus a focus on that. Yeah, I I love that, David. And I that was not a that that particular way of imagining it wasn't conscious for me. I think it was more about um, n- nothing in in life, like much less ourselves, being only one way and having to deal with with that rather than try to kind of reduce things to this this essence that isn't actually true about them. Yeah. Um, whether they're dead whales or, you know, a person trying to get an abortion or um, a, a state that, you know, in the 21st century really prizes this, this feeling of like progressiveness and, you know, we have curbside compost pickup and, and all these things and yet um, – this it has this really violent like white supremacist history um, that that it's built upon right so what do you do with that um, and and how do you understand it in a way that's not sort of deleting one thing in order to look at the other thing? Well, you were asked the question in one interview, which I I don't think I would normally ask because I feel like it puts a lot of, of weight on someone's shoulders, but you you answered it in such a, a great way. And I'm just curious to hear you answer it now again, even if it's differently. But you were asked what advice you you have for aspiring feminist writers. And um, at the time, you, you gave a really interesting answer. And do you, does anything come to mind in particular when, when you hear that question again? Um, well, I, yeah, I think about reading, like going backwards um not backwards in a regressive way but just looking at who got us here right um because one of the things i've been thinking about a lot with you know meet the me too hashtag and um some of the rhetoric around this political moment sometimes you hear phrases like for the first time women are speaking up or for the first time blah 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 and my reaction is always like no that's it's not there's no first time about this like a lot of what we're able to accomplished now is because in the 70s and the 40s and the you know 1910s like other women um, and non-binary folks were like doing this work right and so I think when I think of myself as a feminist writer if I think of giving advice um, to aspiring feminist writers it's really about connecting and, and being knowledgeable with um, our history whether it's like reading Lord reading Wolf like reading bell hooks um, Angela Davis, like people who ha- ha- did a 
shitload of I can't say that on the radio. People who <laughs> whose labor and sacrifice have everything to do with this moment. Can you tell us what you're working on now if you are working on something? I, I imagine this next year is going to be a whirlwind based on the the, the buzz that's happening about this book. But uh, do you have a project that you're working on? I do. I have um, a new novel um, that I am working on uh, that is probably consists of like a lot of the ways I work on novels. I, ha- I have like word collections, just word lists and phrases and images and um, I kind of think of those as the if they're like individual Legos that will sort of like go together to to make other things. Um, I was trying to think of a less cliched thing than building blocks, but Legos is kind of uninteresting also. But um, so right now, what I do when I want to work on that book is I'll you know read th- my favorite dictionary is I have this um, crossword puzzle uh, dictionary, which is is. Have we talked about this before, David? It's, it's the so. best dictionary in the world. It's it's also, it, you know, it has etymologies of words. It has definitions and um, kind of talks about like different languages or parts of the world, like how, breaking down, you know, how you, what's slang for, you know, sex in the Faroe Islands or something. Um, so I might just read the dictionary for a while. Um, so that's probably like this phase of a novel is the most pleasurable and uh, most private. Mm-hmm. Well, it was great having you back on the show. I'm so glad to talk to you, David. Thank you. We're talking today to writer Lainey Zumas about her latest novel, Red Clocks from Little Brown. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Lainey Zumas's work can be found at laineyzumas.com, L-E-N-I-Z-U-M-A-S.com, including her wonderful gratitudes page that we mentioned in the conversation. And I'd like to thank and give a shout out to Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog et sa petite amie, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.